Welcome back to Clearing the Air, where we explore why air pollution persists in Asian megacities and what can be done about it. My name is Koa Tran, and I'm Shermaine Lee. Our team at Sustainable Asia partnered with the Heinrich Böll Foundation to produce this series. I'm flat out of ideas. Last year, the Prime Minister's special advisor on climate change said that air pollution is, in Pakistan is caused by Indian farmers burning crops, which is patently untrue because crop burning only takes place two times a year for about a week or ten days. Like many citizens in the polluted megacities of Asia, Rafi Alam from Lahore, Pakistan, is tired of the excuses that his government gives as reasons for the horrible air quality where they live and work. It's easy to blame neighboring countries' agricultural burning to shift the focus off the actual problem. That solving air pollution in a megacity is a complex issue which doesn't get fixed overnight. In this episode, we talk to a leading advocate in New Delhi who has been able to successfully engage the government there. Don't get me wrong, Delhi's air pollution is still one of the worst in the world, but there are signs of hope that the municipal government is trying to clear the air. Later, we'll come back to address transboundary pollution again and trace its path from India to Kathmandu, Nepal. It turns out the winds do blow Delhi's polluted air, but instead of heading north to Lahore. They actually travel east towards the pristine Himalayan mountains of Nepal. On the streets of Delhi, it's a madhouse. You've seen it in movies: rickshaws, cars, bikes, motorbikes, every mode of transport imaginable in this crowded city. So we thought. We would talk to some citizens who live and work by the roadside. Name our name Musinga or 23 age our. Delhi me to Golgawad me rehta hu. Ambush Singh is 23 and has lived in the Delhi area for four years. He said there are many vehicles and there's dust everywhere. Even a mask can't protect you. When we asked him what he was going to do about it, he said, "I'm struggling with my life and livelihood, so I don't have time to think about it." My name is Aradhya Moria. I'm from Delhi. I'm from Delhi, Govindpuri. My age is 27. Aradhya Moria is 27 and has lived all her life in Delhi. She says Delhi's air pollution is very high due to heavy traffic. It's difficult even to breathe, she says. The pollution affects children more. Pollution, along with COVID-19, has made our lives miserable. Delhi is consistently ranked one of the most polluted cities in the world. In 2020, New Delhi's average annual concentration of PM 2.5 per cubic meter was about 84, double that of Beijing. And according to a recent study by Greenpeace Southeast Asia. Air pollution that year caused an estimated 54,000 premature deaths in Delhi. Of course, like in all our episodes in the series, there are activists trying to improve the air quality in Delhi. One of those activists began battling air pollution 20 years ago. I'm Anumita Raichaudhary, executive director in charge of research and advocacy at the Centre for Science and Environment, India. CSE, or the Center for Science and Environment, is a well-known think tank based in New Delhi. Anumita has worked extensively to build the campaign on the right to clean air in New Delhi, 
catalyzing new developments, including improved emission standards for vehicles and replacement of Delhi's diesel public transport vehicles with a natural gas-based fleet. So I asked her, what does it take to be successful in engaging the government on clean air issues? So our effort always has been to first try and understand ourselves. What is the problem all about? What needs to be done? And to do that, we do our own research investigation. We try and engage with multi-sector, the, the stakeholders, the different target groups, um, understand the global learning curve, that how other countries have done that. So first we build that knowledge. Once we build that knowledge based on our research and investigation, then we put that out, put out that knowledge. And for that, we follow different methods of engagement. And rather than just promoting rallies or protests, we work a little differently. I mean, we use science and information as the bullet points. That is the weaponry that we have. So we normally uh, have not adopted methods like organizing rallies and or signature campaigns, but we have used our own innovative methods. For instance, I will tell you like when initially, when we had started our right to clean air campaign, we did a study and we found how many people were dying and falling ill because of air pollution related diseases. So we took out a public ad in the national daily and the public ad had the banner headline saying so many thousand people dead by breathing, you know, and then catch attention of the people to it. I asked Anumita to give me a few more examples of how they started their public engagement in the late 90s. We have also used, I remember the late 90s, another method when there was an assembly election in Delhi and we prepared a clean air pledge and we took it to the prospective electoral candidates and we asked them that if you get elected and you come back to power, then are you willing to sign on to this clean air pledge and say that you will take this action to control air pollution? And several of them had signed on it. And then just before the election, we had put out that list for people to know that who had signed the Clean Air Pledge, right? Uh, in fact, one of the candidates who had signed the Clean Air Pledge had actually become the Chief Minister of Delhi. So, uh, talking about late 90s, I still remember during one of the auto exhibition where the automobile industry put out their fancy cars for exhibition. We had hired a stall where we had put up our exhibition on air pollution and we had invited the Chief Minister of Delhi and we got her lungs tested in that auto expo to make the point. You know how, uh, how vehicles are affecting our lungs. So we had tried those methods. But over a period of time, uh, what we have realized that in the initial years, when no one was listening, when no one really knew about what the problem was, at that point of time, using this kind of method and information to shock and provoke was important. But thereafter, when things started to happen, when the government began to participate in implementation of solution. So a bit of a shock factor to start. To grab the government's attention. Once the government is paying attention, and luckily Delhi's municipal government did, 
So more engagement started. So it was not a polarized conversation, but it was an engagement with the government where we could take our science and knowledge and inform. But simultaneously, we have always ensured that we develop platforms and forum for public engagement so that uh, everything that we do, we talk about the science that we understand is put out in the public domain and how to demystify it. And demystifying a complex issue like air pollution is tough. For the public to understand that science, because science of air pollution is extremely technical. What needs to be done is extremely technical. So we can't keep that science confined to the scientist. We have to uh, make that science understood by the people. So that has been our effort. The year 2004, five around that time, when there was a visible improvement because all the dirty smoking diesel vehicles had gone off the road. And it was very interesting how people perceived that improvement. Like a scientist will perceive that improvement by giving you data that particulate matter and the gases have reduced by so much percent. But people's perception and description of that improvement was that we can see the stars in the sky now. So that's making that connection with the way people understand, people respond is very important. Pankaj Kumar. Pankaj Kumar, a 27-year-old truck driver, said this. Of course, pollution is very much out there. It will be there whatever you do. Earlier, it was only petrol, diesel, now CNG has also come. But pollution is still there. So I think there is a lot of expectation now in India especially after all the commitments that India has made uh, in Glasgow, in COP26. The push to clear the air in Delhi continues, and Anumita is hopeful that air pollution will improve with India's new carbon reduction commitments under the UN Climate Change Agreements. So, in fact, more than the net zero goal in 2070, we are more excited and expectant about what India has stated will achieve billion tons of carbon to be reduced by 2030 and energy intensity of the economy by you know, 245%. So you can understand that this has brought a new energy, new expectation, and but everything will now depend on how we are going to define the milestones to achieve those targets. And the clock starts now that you know, if you really want to see 1 billion ton of carbon getting reduced by 2030, then the process has to begin today with very clear milestone. And what is more important is that it is also is an opportunity for us to develop the co-benefit framework in which what is going to work for climate change will also work for clean air. So if you are taking action to reduce emissions in the industry, vehicles, power plant, waste sector, then that action is going to give us the co-benefit of reducing local air pollution as well as heat-trapping carbon dioxide. Luckily for clean air advocates, COP26 climate targets focus on reducing greenhouse gases, and carbon dioxide, a key component of air pollution, is also a major component of greenhouse gas emissions. 
So if you reduce carbon emissions, it reduces air pollution and greenhouse gases. Double win. But Anumita doesn't want to shift the government's lens to only focus on international policy associated with climate change targets. I think it is more important for us to look at the domestic policy and look at the clean energy transition. And、uh, what we have discussed already, as part of the Cleaner Action Plan, which is a local agenda in India today,、uh, already、uh, energy transition is part of that agenda. In fact, as I said, Delhi has already completely stopped coal. It is illegally stopped coal, and now we are looking at how this can be further expanded to reduce coal usage in the surrounding regions of Delhi. So the process has started, and I feel this kind the the local public health agenda will also drive energy transition to a great extent. My name is Radhishyam Gupta. My age is 43 years. When we asked the question, "How can the government help?" most respondents said, "Plant trees." Radishyam Gupta, who is speaking, replied, "The more trees you cut, the higher the temperature. We're not planting trees, even though our fathers and grandfathers had planted them. We're just cutting them. This is not good for our future." And indeed, the municipality of Delhi has launched a plantation drive. To fight air pollution in the capital, under which it plans to plant nearly 85,000 trees and about 500,000 U.S. dollars worth of shrubs and ornamental plants this year, the capital had developed as many as 17 mini forests last year, and this year it plans to develop 20 more of these mini forests. So the government of Delhi is listening. However, the health impacts of the city's air pollution is not only being felt with its local residents, but also with people living over a thousand kilometers away. For the second day in a row, a thick layer of smog enveloped the Nepal capital Kathmandu. The PM 2.5 levels of more than 150 milligram per meter cube are considered extremely dangerous for human health, and people are recommended to stay indoors. New Delhi in India and Lahore in Pakistan lie in the North Indian river plains, bound by the Himalayan mountains to the north. As you creep up the Himalayas to an altitude of around 1,400 meters, you will find the Kathmandu Valley, a plateau just a few short strides from the world's highest mountains, and sadly, home to some of the worst air pollution in the world. Kathmandu Valley. If you've seen the topography of the valley itself, yeah, it's it's up in the mountains. In a valley that is shaped like a bowl, it's a、mm. bit like Mexico City,、mm-hmm. surrounded by mountains on all sides. Kunda Dixit is the publisher of the Nepali Times newspaper in Kathmandu and author of the media textbook Dateline Earth: Journalism as if the Planet Mattered. What happens in winter is that the pollutants, which comes mainly from vehicular emissions as well as open burning of garbage, and number three, or from brick kilns that emit, you know,、uh, dirty smoke. So these three, mainly these three pollutants, then they spew out、uh, particulates into the air, and that gets trapped underneath a layer of cold air in winter, and it makes the air basically unbreathable. In winter, AQI goes up to 250, 300 regularly in the mornings and evenings. So Kathmandu experiences the same kind of air pollution inversion effect during the winter that Bangkok does. In fact, a lot of megacities around the world face this problem, like Mexico City, which, as Kunda mentioned earlier, is also surrounded by mountains. 
But the scientists have done studies and also in winter, what makes it worse, not just for Kathmandu, but for Nepal, is prevailing winds bringing in pollution from the North Indian plains. And uh, North India, and if, if you see the figures for AQI in Delhi, in winter is actually even worse than Kathmandu. So all those pollutants are then blown from the southwest by the prevailing winds up to the mountains, and that adds to the pollution. And studies have shown that about 40% of Kathmandu Valley's pollution is actually cross-border. It's particulates that are transported from Pakistan, India into Nepal, and then about 60% is Kathmandu's own pollution. So it is a transnational issue, not just a Nepal issue. Transboundary air pollution follows wind patterns rather than geopolitical borders. So the dirty air of one country could easily be blown to another. And as Anumita explained earlier, Delhi's air that is blowing over is really polluted. But Kathmandu has its own issues as well. Kunda mentioned vehicle emissions, burning of garbage, and smoky brick kilns. Similar problems to Delhi and Lahore. But what is Nepal doing about it? We have National Climate Change Policy of 2019. We have Environmental Conservation Act of 2019. We have National Ambient Air Quality Standard of 2012. We have Nepal Vehicle Mass Emission Standard of 2012. Bupanda Das is currently a research faculty at Oklahoma City Anthropology Research and Nepal and chairperson of Nepal Energy and Environmental Development Services, and a frequent speaker in Nepal about air quality issues. Bupendra explained to me that although Nepal has passed a number of laws requiring the government to set specific measurement targets, so far they have mostly failed to act. Without specific targets, it's hard to establish programs to meet them. There is one bright spot recently, however. Government of Nepal's increased the fuel tax. It resulted in threefold rise. So before it was uh, 0.5 rupees per liter. That is in Nepali currency that we had to pay for each liter of fuel that we bought. Now we have to pay 1.5 rupees per liter. So this is one advancement from the government side to control air pollution. Nepal is also actively formulating its carbon reduction targets under the UN Paris Agreement. Yet, despite this, air quality continues to worsen. Well, Nepal is different. I mean, we are preoccupied with getting our politics straight. We had a war for 10 years, so there have been a lot of distractions. Policymakers, legislators, as well as politicians, have had very little time to think about, you know, environmental issues, and、uh, and these are critical because they are so detrimental to public health, to the erosion of nature. So I think what you have is governance failure, leading to an inability of policymaking levels and agencies of government to tackle environmental threats, and this includes air pollution. I ask Kunda to expand on that. Governance failure basically means that politicians、uh, in a democracy, when they're elected, are expected to be accountable to the people. They're supposed to be solving problems, especially issues that have a direct impact on public health, like air pollution. And yet, they do nothing. They are too engrossed in acquiring power and keeping that power. And there are other ways in elections to be elected without showing any performance. Kunda is frustrated by the last decade of Nepalese politics, but as publisher of the Nepali Times, he has done an admirable job keeping air pollution at the forefront of Kathmandu news. Doilek Zila ki rekha thapa BBS ko padai sakera Kathmandu auna chahanu hundyo, taro uha ko icha pura auna sakena. Poisa novaer hoyna. It's not that air pollution is not an issue. It's a very very serious issue. 
we've seen, uh, we've done public opinion polls in, in Kathmandu where before local elections in 2017, uh, we asked uh, respondents what was their main concern. And we'd expected them to say, you know, political stability or corruption or things like that, which are also problems. But they said number one was air pollution, even back in 2017. And yet, even though it was a matter of such public concern, pollution and garbage were not addressed by uh, the elected mayors. Being the curious journalist I am, I counted the articles in the Nepali Times that cited air pollution. Since 2020, there have been almost 90 articles talking about air pollution. And that media blitz seems to have helped. And we just had local elections uh, last week in Kathmandu. And that is why the, the incumbent mayor at that time, he has been defeated. And we now have a very young 32-year-old mayor who is an independent and who set his main agenda. He just took office. He was sworn in about three days ago. And he said that he's going to solve the garbage problem, number one. Number two, the air pollution problem. And I think we're beginning to see the start of how public pressure can lead to policy change. And let's hope it works. The new mayor of Kathmandu, Balandra Shah, has a pretty interesting background. He's actually an engineer, a civil engineer, who understands the, you know, for example, the science of uh, garbage uh, management urban waste management, landfill sites. You know, he, he understands all that. He's also a rapper. He's a rap singer. So, so he's been, and he's an independent. So he doesn't belong to any party. And the fact that people of Kathmandu believed an independent candidate and not someone from a major party means that they were fed up with things like garbage and air pollution. Bupendadras also is positive about the new mayor. Well, we are very glad to know that younger generations and uh, his background is in civil engineering. So his academic level is very much strong and uh, he is quite discussing with the local public. So it sounds like Kathmandu's governance over environmental issues is on the up and up. Well, the town citizens will certainly enjoy some good rap music concerts over the next year. Hopefully under blue skies? Let's hope so. In the case of Kathmandu, active media coverage that kept air pollution as a key political issue has ushered a new group of local government officials that will do something about it. Right, and in Delhi, groups like Anumita's Center for Science and Environment combined research and advocacy to encourage new policies curbing air pollution. And that's a good thing, because in megacities like Delhi and Kathmandu, the average person on the street doesn't really have time to think about how their city is governed. They just need to make a living wage. The average taxi driver in New Delhi makes about 210 US dollars per month, according to the human resources company Indeed. In Kathmandu, it lowers to about 187 US dollars per month. And often, these drivers are supporting a family. Air South Asia and Clean Up Nepal posted on YouTube an interview with a taxi driver in Kathmandu. When asked what health impacts he is seeing from air pollution, he states, 
eye irritation, sometimes difficulty in talking and breathing because of inhaling too much dust. <laughs> But when asked if he could change jobs or get involved in fighting air pollution, he said, We can't stop driving on these roads for that reason. We have to look after our family. So we work even if the conditions is bad. So while battling air quality in these poor regions of Asia can present a lot of challenges, Anumita believes that because India is starting from the ground up to develop its infrastructure, there is a light at the end of the poor air quality tunnel. The biggest message from our uh, experience in India, and particularly in the developing world, is that often, especially the clean air narrative, it always gets read as a doomsday narrative. You know, as if things are bad, going to remain bad, will not change. And but what I would say that yes, it's tough, difficult, and it's a very difficult problem and a battle that we will really have to wage. But I. Still believe in the hope and optimism of change because today, where I am, and with my experience of last 25 years, what I have seen that change has been possible. If Delhi could completely eliminate diesel, could eliminate coal, we have seen that happening, right? So there is no reason why we cannot do more and at a much wider scale at speed. In the future, and we have the opportunity because uh, the India is growing now. And in fact, we say that the the built environment in India that you will have in the year 2030 or 2040, that 60 percent of that is yet to be constructed. So what? So if the new construction or the new industrialization, new motorization that is going to happen in India. If we can link that with the right technology, with the right roadmap, then our growth will certainly can be achieved with minimal impact on pollution. And some of that technology is being developed in the wealthier megacities of Asia, like Seoul, Korea. More about that in our next episode. Hey, Sustainable Asia listeners! I'm Marcy Trent Long, and I'm the executive producer of Sustainable Asia. Your hosts for this episode were Koa Tran and Charmaine Lee. Koa Tran and I produced this episode alongside sound engineer Avery Choi and associate producer Jack Lee. A big thank you to our guests Anumita Rochadri, Kunda Dexit, and Bupendra Das. We couldn't have made this podcast series without the support of the Heinrich Boll Foundation, a green think tank from Germany with more than 30 offices around the world. We enjoyed working with the Bangkok, New Delhi, and Hong Kong offices to produce this series. Check out the Heinrich Boll Foundation website links in our show notes to learn more about their insightful and thoughtful work across the Asia region. Alexander Mobison created the intro-outro music made from repurposed and recovered waste items. Thanks for listening. See you next episode.